0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cechris, London, UK. THE IDLE THOUGHTS OF AN IDLE FELLOW by Jerome K. Jerome. SECTION 3. ON BEING IN THE BLUES. I can enjoy feeling melancholy, and there is a good deal of satisfaction about being thoroughly miserable. But nobody likes a fit of the blues. Nevertheless, everybody has them, notwithstanding which, nobody can tell why. There is no accounting for them. You are just as likely to have one on the day after you have come into a large fortune as on the day after you have left your new silk umbrella in the train.' "'its effect upon you is somewhat similar "'to what would probably be produced "'by a combined attack of toothache, "'indigestion, and cold in the head. "'You become stupid, restless and irritable, "'rude to strangers and dangerous toward your friends, "'clumsy, maudlin and quarrelsome, "'a nuisance to yourself and everybody about you. "'While it is on,' you can do nothing and think of nothing, though feeling at the time bound to do something. You can't sit still, so put on your hat and go for a walk. But before you get to the corner of the street, you wish you hadn't come out, and you turn back. You open a book and try to read, but you find Shakespeare trite and commonplace. Dickens is dull and prosy. Thackeray a bore— "'and Carlyle too sentimental. "'You throw the book aside and call the author names. "'Then you shoo the cat out of the room "'and kick the door to after her. "'You think you will write your letters. "'But after sticking at, "'Dearest auntie, I find I have five minutes to spare "'and so hasten to write to you, "'for a quarter of an hour, "'without being able to think of another sentence.' You tumble the paper into the desk, fling the wet pen down upon the tablecloth, and start up with the resolution of going to see the Thompsons. While pulling on your gloves, however, it occurs to you that the Thompsons are idiots, that they never have supper, and that you will be expected to jump the baby. You curse the Thompsons and decide not to go. By this time you feel completely crushed, You bury your face in your hands and think you would like to die and go to heaven. You picture to yourself your own sick-bed, with all your friends and relations standing round you weeping. You bless them all, especially the young and pretty ones. They will value you when you are gone, so you say to yourself, and learn too late what they have lost. And you bitterly contrast their presumed regard for you then, with their decided want of veneration now. These reflections make you feel a little more cheerful, but only for a brief period. For the next moment you think what a fool you must be to imagine for an instant that anybody would be sorry at anything that might happen to you. Who would care two straws—whatever precise amount of care two straws may represent—whether you are blown up, or hung up, or married, or drowned. Nobody cares for you. You never have been properly appreciated, never met with your due deserts in any one particular. You review the whole of your past life, and it is painfully apparent that you have been ill-used from your cradle. Half an hour's indulgence in these considerations works you up into a state of savage fury against everybody and everything, especially yourself, whom anatomical reasons alone prevent your kicking. Bedtime at last comes, to save you from doing something rash, and you spring upstairs, throw off your clothes, leaving them strewn all over the room, blow out the candle, and jump into bed as if you had backed yourself for a heavy wager to do the whole thing against time. There you toss and tumble about for a couple of hours or so, varying the monotony by occasionally jerking the clothes off, and getting out and putting them on again. At length you drop into an uneasy and fitful slumber, have bad dreams, and wake up late the next morning. At least this is all we poor single men can do under the circumstances. Married men bully their wives, grumble at the dinner— and insist on the children's going to bed. All of which, creating, as it does, a good deal of disturbance in the house, must be a great relief to the feelings of a man in the blues, rouse being the only form of amusement in which he can take any interest. The symptoms of the infirmity are much the same in every case, but the affliction itself is variously termed. The poet says that, a feeling of sadness comes o'er him. Arry refers to the heavings of his wayward heart by confiding to Jimmy that he has got the blooming hump. Your sister doesn't know what is the matter with her to-night. She feels out of sorts altogether, and hopes nothing is going to happen. The every-day young man is so awful glad to meet you, old fellow, for he does "'feel so jolly miserable this evening. "'As for myself, I generally say that "'I have a strange unsettled feeling tonight, "'and think I'll go out. "'By the way, it never does come except in the evening. "'In the sun-time, when the world is bounding forward full of life, "'we cannot stay to sigh and sulk.' The roar of the working day drowns the voices of the elfin sprites that are ever singing their low-toned miserere in our ears. In the day we are angry, disappointed, or indignant, but never in the blues, and never melancholy. When things go wrong at ten o'clock in the morning, we—or rather you—swear and knock the furniture about. But if the misfortune comes at ten p.m., We read poetry, or sit in the dark and think what a hollow world this is. But as a rule it is not trouble that makes us melancholy. The actuality is too stern a thing for sentiment. We linger to weep over a picture, but from the original we should quickly turn our eyes away. There is no pathos in real misery, no luxury in real grief. We do not toy with sharp swords, nor hug a gnawing fox to our breast for choice. When a man or woman loves to brood over a sorrow, and takes care to keep it green in their memory, you may be sure it is no longer a pain to them. However they may have suffered from it at first, the recollection has become by then a pleasure. Many dear old ladies who daily look at tiny shoes, lying in lavender scented drawers, and weep as they think of the tiny feet whose toddling march is done. And sweet-faced young ones who place each night beneath their pillow some lock that once curled on a boyish head that the salt waves have kissed to death, will call me a nasty, cynical brute, and say I'm talking nonsense. But I believe, nevertheless, that if they will ask themselves truthfully whether they find it unpleasant— to dwell thus on their sorrow, they will be compelled to answer no. Tears are as sweet as laughter to some natures. The proverbial Englishman, we know from old chronicler Froissart, takes his pleasures sadly, and the Englishwoman goes a step further, and takes her pleasures in sadness itself. I am not sneering. I would not for a moment sneer at anything that helps to keep hearts tender in this hard old world. We men are cold and common-sensed enough for all. We would not have women the same. No, no, ladies dear, be always sentimental and soft-hearted, as you are. Be the soothing butter to our coarse dry bread. Besides, sentiment is to women what fun is to us. They do not care for our humour. Surely it would be unfair to deny them their grief. And who shall say that their mode of enjoyment is not as sensible as ours? Why assume that a doubled-up body, a contorted purple face, and a gaping mouth emitting a series of ear-splitting shrieks point to a state of more intelligent happiness than a pensive face reposing upon a little white hand? and a pair of gentle, tear-dimmed eyes looking back through time's dark avenue upon a fading past. I am glad when I see regret walked with as a friend, glad because I know the saltness has been washed from out the tears, and that the sting must have been plucked from the beautiful face of sorrow ere we dare press her pale lips to ours. Time has laid his healing hand upon the wound, when we can look back upon the pain we once fainted under, and no bitterness or despair rises in our hearts. The burden is no longer heavy, when we have for our past troubles only the same sweet mingling of pleasure and pity, that we feel when old knight-hearted Colonel Newcombe answers "'Add some!' to the great roll-call. Or when Tom and Maggie Tulliver— clasping hands through the mists that have divided them, go down locked in each other's arms beneath the swollen waters of the floss. Talking of poor Tom and Maggie Tulliver brings to my mind a saying of George Eliot's in connection with this subject of melancholy. She speaks somewhere of the sadness of a summer's evening. How wonderfully true, like everything that came from that wonderful pen— The observation is. Who has not felt the sorrowful enchantment Of those lingering sunsets? The world belongs to melancholy, then, A thoughtful, deep-eyed maiden Who loves not the glare of day. It is not till light thickens And the crow wings to the rocky wood That she steals forth from her groves. Her palace is in twilight land. It is there she meets us, At her shadowy gate she takes our hand in hers and walks beside us through her mystic realm. We see no form, but seem to hear the rustling of her wings. Even in the toiling humdrum city her spirit comes to us. There is a sombre presence in each long dull street, and the dark river creeps ghost-like under the black arches, as if bearing some hidden secret beneath its muddy waves. In the silent country, when the trees and hedges loom dim and blurred against the rising night, and the bat's wing flutters in our face, and the landrail's cry sounds drearily across the fields, the spell sinks deeper still into our hearts. We seem in that hour to be standing by some unseen deathbed, and in the swaying of the elms we hear the sigh of the dying day. A solemn sadness reigns. A great peace is around us. In its light, our cares of the working day grow small and trivial, And bread and cheese, aye, and even kisses, Do not seem the only things worth striving for. Thoughts we cannot speak, but only listen to, flood in upon us, And standing in the stillness under earth's darkening dome, We feel that we are greater than our petty lives. Hung round with those dusky curtains, The world is no longer a mere dingy workshop, But a stately temple wherein man may worship, And where at times in the dimness His groping hands touch God's. End of section 3